Donald Trump has won the endorsement of Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, and a fat tub of guts. Christie is the same garbage state bucket of lard who hugged Barack Obama to his jello-like frame in 2012, thus giving a radical third-rate president his cholesterol-laced imprimatur in the midst of a hard-fought election campaign. This time, Christie hauled his double-wide backside to the podium to give his blubbery support to a dishonest proto-fascist who six months ago, he said, wasn't suited to be president of the United States. The thunder-thighed Christie proclaimed to a cheering crowd, quote, I never met a marbled slab of beef I didn't like, and so I've decided to endorse Donald Trump. Now, Governor Christie might say to me, hey, Andrew, what kind of lowlife stoops to cheap personal insults instead of explaining his disagreements over policy in a forceful but rational and informed manner? To which I would say to the governor, exactly, what kind of lowlife does that, and why did you endorse him, you fat schmuck? Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. That wasn't nice. Come on. Come on. Now it's... Now we're just getting mean. We're getting low. We're all, we're all turning into... We're all Donald Trump now, you know? <laughs> so it's Leap Day. It's Leap Day. It's February 29th, which means that everything is backwards. Women can propose to men, and men can complain about how badly they're treated. It's like <laughs> everything cha- everybody changes roles. So we'll be doing the show. We're going to be talking very slowly on the show today, in case any of you were watching the Oscars last night and lost a couple of IQ points, because <laughs> watching the Oscars has now become like drinking too much. You know, you wake up the next morning and think, I'm stupid now. I don't know. <laughs> like I, I, went, I went to bed. I don't feel very well. And now it's like, so. but we'll get to that. First, we're going to talk about politics, because this weekend, you know, I complain that every time I turn my back, you know, the country, some major disaster happens. But this weekend was really just a kind of panoply of stupidity, just the parade of stupidity because you're saving i know you're saving the disaster for super tuesday <laughs> the big disaster is coming but what what's happening i mean you you heard it here first i mean trump is looking very strong going into super tuesday and the big problem is that nobody wants to drop out because everybody got has got that little carrot like floating in front of him you know like ted cruz has texas and you know marco rubio thinks he may get florida and Kasich wants ohio so no you know nobody wants to drop out they've got this little illusion you know drawing them on and as long as they all stay in Trump divides and conquers and wins. So he's being very strong. And as you heard it here, this this show, it's like a time machine taking you into the future. This uh, You heard it here. I said, as he wins, suddenly, you know, people are going to have these kind of revelations where suddenly one minute they're going to be looking at this kind of bully, fascist, you know, uh, liar and all this stuff. And then the next moment they're going to, oh, he's a statesman of genius. And so all the endorsements are falling into place. And also, the other thing you heard here, I have to say, you know, a a long time ago, I did an entire show where I compared Trump to Lonesome Roads from the Andy Griffith movie of uh, Face in the Crowd. And that's now become a meme. I saw other people are now saying that. Yeah, it's like suddenly they they saw the movie or something like that. And the other one, this is a little funnier because I'm a little actually... I think I'm behind the curve on this one. On Friday, on Thursday, I couldn't remember his name, but I was comparing Trump to the bully in Back to the Future, Biff. It turns out, I, so I looked this up because suddenly Jonah Goldberg said it the next day and all these people started saying the same thing. So I look it up and it's and the guy who wrote Back to the Future 2 says Biff was actually based on Trump. I did not know this. He says, listen to this. He says, we thought about it. 
This is the guy who wrote Back to the, the second one. We thought about it, and we made the movie. Are you kidding, says the writer? You watch part two again, and there's a scene where Marty confronts Biff in his office, and there's a huge portrait of Biff on the wall behind Biff, and there's one moment where Biff kind of stands up and takes exactly the same pose as the portrait, which is exactly what Trump does all the time. He says there's a very specific analog between Biff Tannen, the bully and bad guy, in almost every timeline in Back to the Future Part Two, and, and Trump, who is rather popular, as a certain political figure. Biff has been handed the keys to, the for to a fortune. He's unrepentantly used that fortune exclusively for himself, and he's even become a public advocate for plastic surgery for women and his family. It's not hard to put two and two together. So this is Bob Gale is the name of the writer. He wrote Back to the Future Two, and he says, we thought about it, he says, in the movie, Biff uses the profits from his 27-story casino, the Trump Plaza Hotel has 37 floors, he uses it to help shake up the Republican Party before eventually assuming political power himself, help, helping transform Hill Valley, California into a lawless dystopian wasteland where hooliganism reigns, dissent is quashed, and wherein Biff encourages every citizen to call him America's greatest living folk hero. And Bob Gale, the writer, says, yeah, that's what we were thinking about. We were thinking about Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Uh, so, so it's all, every, all of life's wisdom is in the movies, as we know. So Peggy Noonan wrote this column that I'm going to read before I get to the question of the endorsements. I just want to read a little bit of this column. I, I always talk about how I like Peggy Noonan because she writes like a girl. And it's too many, too many uh, female political analysts don't write like women. And she just unabashedly, she writes with warmth and compassion. And she's not afraid to in, intuit. She doesn't write with any aggression. There's never any aggression in a Peggy Noonan column. And she's not afraid to use like intuition. She's not afraid to say, things feel this way to me. Now, Maureen Dowd does that too, but she's always wrong. <laughs> you know? whereas, whereas Noonan really does have a feel. And she says, she says, she keeps thinking about how Donald Trump got to be the very likely Republican nominee. There are many answers and reasons, but my thoughts keep revolving around the idea of protection, of being protected, which is a very girly thing to say. And one of the reasons I like this is because all pundits, all people are like the old uh, parable of the wise men, the blind men with the elephant. Remember the blind men with the element one feels is his side and says he's like a wall and one feels his trunk and says he's like a snake and each one has just got a little bit of it and so when I think of Trump what I think of so much is is political correctness and censorship I think of all this bottled up anger because people haven't been able to say what's right in front of it but what she thinks about is she thinks about people who are protected she says there are the protected and the unprotected the protected make public policy the unprotected live in it the unprotected are starting to push back Okay, the protected are the accomplished, the secure, the successful. They are protected from much of the roughness of the world, but more to the point, they are protected from the world they have created. They make public policy, and the unprotected have to live in it. And she says, she talks about how, for instance, the most obvious example is the immigration crisis, the illegal immigration. All these people are complaining about it, and if you read every male columnist in the Wall Street Journal, you read every boy columnist in the Wall Street Journal, what you get is, oh, what do they mean? You know, immigration is wonderful for our country. Immigration, and Peggy Noonan, because she's a girl, says, well, you know, if baby, basically, if the baby is crying, maybe something's wrong. Let's go look. You know, if people are complaining, let's hear what they have to say. And she realizes that the unprotected, the people who do not have the wealth, who do not have the, the cushion of, of money, they're the ones who are getting screwed by things that are that may be beneficial to the protected and that is a bad system you know that is a bad system i mean the thing the thing about donald trump 
Donald Trump is not the beginning of the future. He's the end of the past, okay? Donald Trump is a symbol of the fact that the system is not working for a large, large number of the people. All right, so now suddenly Chris Christie endorses him. So play, play uh, the first cut of Chris Christie. Donald's a great guy and a good person, but I just don't think he's suited to be president of the United States. Why? Um, I don't think his temperament is suited for that, and I don't think his experience is. He's got great experience in doing things in business, but I'll give you a perfect example. If he doesn't get what he wants from John Boehner, you can't fire him. You, know, you can't say, Mr. Speaker, you're fired. Mr. Majority Leader, you're fired. you got to learn to work, and, and, and I just don't think it best utilizes his skills. Okay, now, that, that's a, a little while ago. Maybe, I think that's about six, seven months ago. So here he is endorsing him. So it's, it's a new day. I can guarantee you that the one person that Hillary and Bill Clinton do not want to see on that stage come next September is Donald Trump. They know how to run the standard political playbook against uh, junior senators um, and run them around the block. They do not know the playbook with Donald Trump because he is rewriting the playbook. He is rewriting the playbook of American politics because he's providing strong leadership that's not dependent upon the status quo. And so uh, the best person to beat Hillary Clinton in November on that stage last night is undoubtedly Donald Trump. And so I am thrilled to be here this morning uh, to lend my support. I will lend my support between now and November in every way that I can for Donald to help to make this campaign an even better campaign than it's already been, and then to help him do whatever he needs to do to help to make the country everything that we want it to be for our children and grandchildren. Um, he's a good friend, he is a strong and resolute leader, um, and he is someone who is going to lead the Republican Party to victory um, in November over Hillary Clinton, which is the single most important thing we can do. Let me just uh, stop, just take a side trip there when he says this is the single most important thing. One of the things I keep hearing now, there are a lot of people who think Trump is going to lose to Hillary going away. And of course, you've noticed that the media who are feeding off Trump because he's great copy. So the media are covering him without saying anything about him. You have to remember that the minute he is running against a Democrat, every bad thing he's ever done, and he's done a lot of bad things, is going to be the front page headline. So they will be hammering him. He could lose. But Trump has rewritten the playbook, so it's very hard to know what's going to happen with Trump. Trump may just wipe Hillary off the stage. I mean, because after all, Hillary is only as dishonest as he is. But to those people who say, if Hillary is nominated, I would vote for anybody but beside Hillary, just remember this. There's no there's certain rules to reality. Everything that lives dies, you know. Every every joy all joy comes from love. The price of love is grief. Those are those are rules. Those are rules. Those never ever change no matter who you are, no matter how much money you have, no matter how little you have. Those are rules of life. There is no rule to reality that says two you can only have two choices and both can be can stink. You know, there's no rule that says they can't both stink. There's no rule that says that just because Hillary Clinton is the worst person to run for president, Donald Trump isn't also the worst person to run for president. So, I mean, I don't really see those two guys, you know, if those two are running against each other, I don't really, I'm not going to be saying to myself, well, anything is better than Hillary, because I don't think Trump is better than Hillary, and I don't think Hillary is better than Trump. I think those are, there's no rule that says they both can't be bad, and they are both bad. So, we saw, we just saw Chris Christie selling out his, his principles, basically. If he has any principles, he 
some people say that Marco Rubio left a condescending message on his answering machine and that flipped uh, Christie out and he got angry and endorsed Trump. Other people are saying he's been promised the attorney general's office. You know, we don't know about this stuff. Of, of course, people make deals in politics behind the scenes. But so what? The fact is that he has sold his soul to someone he knows will not make a good president. He has said it maybe eight, nine times. Jan Brewer, the liberal governor, the governor of uh, Arizona, you remember she was a kind of a conservative uh, poster girl for a while because she wagged her finger at Barack Obama over immigration. But of course, that was just that was a cynical move on her part, too. She was a very liberal governor, and she basically seized on that issue in a very tight election race. Jeff Sessions, the Alabama senator, I, you know, I've, I, I kind of like I've met him. I liked him. I always thought he was kind of a rock rib conservative. But when you look at his policies, he is a protectionist. He's a nationalist. He's all the things that Trump liked. And it and, but, of course, the big endorsement, the big endorsement is David Dukes, former Grand Wizard of, of the Ku Klux Klan. Right? And Dukes, Dukes is complaining, I didn't really endorse him, but he said that if you don't vote for Donald Trump, you are betraying your heritage. You're a traitor to your heritage, a traitor to your race. So the first, first on Friday in a press conference, somebody shouts out a question to Trump about the David Duke's endorsement. We'll call it an endorsement. I realize it's not an official endorsement, but David Duke's support. They call it out at a press conference. So this is on Friday. How do you feel about the recent endorsement from David Duke? I didn't even know he endorsed me. David Duke endorsed me? Okay. All right. I disavow. Okay. I disavow. Okay. Okay. I disavow. I disavow the thing. Okay. So that's, that's on Friday. Two days later, Jake Tapper has him on CNN, and Tapper asks him how he feels about it. Here's the answer he gets. I want to ask you about the Anti-Defamation League, which this week called on you to publicly condemn unequivocally the racism of former KKK Grand Wizard David Duke, who recently said that voting against you at this point would be treason to your heritage. Will you unequivocally condemn David Duke and say that you don't want his vote or that of other white supremacists in this election? Well, just so you understand, I don't know anything about David Duke, okay? I don't know anything about what you're even talking about with uh, white supremacy or white supremacists. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Did, did he endorse me or what's going on? Because, you know, I know nothing about David Duke. I know nothing about white supremacists. And so you're asking me a question that I'm supposed to be talking about people that I know nothing about. But I guess the question from the, from the Anti-Defamation League is, even if you don't know about their endorsement, there are these groups and individuals endorsing you. Would you just say unequivocally you condemn them and you don't want their support? Well, I have to look at the group. I mean, I don't know what group you're talking about. You wouldn't want me to condemn a group that I know nothing about. I have to look. If you would send me a list of the groups, I will do research on them. And certainly I would disavow if I thought there was something wrong. The but you Ku may Klux have Klan? groups in there that are totally fine and it would be very unfair. So give me a list of the groups and I'll let you know. Okay. I mean, I'm just talking about David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan here, but... I don't know. Any, honestly, I don't know David Duke. I don't believe I've ever met him. I'm pretty sure I didn't meet him. And I just don't know anything about him. Poor Jake. You know, just just for those who compare Trump to Reagan, Reagan was endorsed by the KKK in 1984. And his response was, those of us in public life can only resent the use of our names by those who seek political recognition for the repugnant doctrines of hate they espouse. The politics of racial hatred and religious bigotry practiced by the Klan and others have no place in this country and are destructive of the values for which America has always stood. That's Ronald Reagan. I, I guess it translates into, I disavow, okay? I, I, I disavow. So after this interview, he did send 
send out a tweet saying, I disavow. So let's hear David Duke. Let's hear from David Duke, because David Duke resented the way he was being treated by, by the press. And here's his video. I appreciated the fact that Donald Trump said that he needed to read my material and look into what I said before he could condemn me for so-called white supremacism. In fact, as I said, I condemn any supremacist of any race that tries to oppress others or harm others or hurt others. In fact, every people has a right to be preserved. Notice how the controlled media basically calls any white person, any European American who simply wants to preserve his European heritage, his, the heritage of Western civilization, his values, his very people, and who s seeks to address the issues that are important to his people. Like, for instance, gun control, the right to keep and bear arms is very important to European Americans. If you look at the demographics, it is not as important to other population groups. The same thing is true in certain tax areas. The same thing is true of certain immigration issues that are vital. Why is it that you can have organizations that work very hard for Mexican issues, for Mexican interests like La Raza Unida, which means the United Race? La Raza, that means the race. Nobody calls them racist. Nobody calls them Mexican supremacist. Now, it, for those of you who don't realize, when he said the controlled media, the, the word that was being cut out was Jew. The Jew-controlled media. The guy is a virulent anti-Semite, a virulent racist. He says he's not a supremacist, meaning he doesn't believe, he doesn't believe that whites should rule supreme, over, but he's trying to preserve the white race. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about what he just said. He, he's right. He's right, essentially. It, he, he is the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter of the whites. That's what he is. If you accept the logic of Black Lives Matter, you got to accept the logic of David Dukes. The logic is this. Somebody of a certain skin color did a certain thing. Everybody of that skin color is to blame. Somebody of a certain skin color held slaves. He, everybody of that skin color is to blame. Somebody in, of a certain skin color mugged you in the park. Everybody of that skin color is to blame. That's the logic. That's the logic they're talking about. And it's the logic the Democrat Party has been selling for years to black people and to Mexican people and to anybody they can lump into an oppressed minority, gay people, whoever they can make feel that they're part of this group. And, and white males have been the, the target of all of this. And Dukes is basically saying, yeah, I accept that logic. I accept that logic and I'm fighting back and it's despicable when he does it and it's despicable when they do it, you know? And this is why, you know, one of the things that happened, uh, another thing that happened over the weekend is South Carolina went for Hillary Clinton in a, a landslide, but nobody showed up. I mean, it was uh, it was 62% black people. It was something like, I, I can't remember, a huge drop in the numbers. There's no enthusiasm, but what there is is this machine that keeps carting the black guys to the, the polls and the black guys who keep voting for this these guys who gut the Democrats who gut their cities and destroy their families and encourage their victimology and all the things that the Democrats do, they just keep voting for them. You know, I, I just have to show you a little bit of this. Uh, last week I went over to PJTV and I bumped into Billy Whittle, my pal Bill Whittle, and he's he's got this book, this children's book about Hillary Clinton that somebody found in a Walmart or wherever it was being sold, a Target or something. And it was Hillary Clinton, some girls are born to lead, so Bill did a tape of it. Here's just a little excerpt. You can see the whole thing on YouTube, but here's an excerpt. Well, hello, potential future rapists and little girls. It's your Uncle Bill, and once again, it's story time. Now, today, we're going to read the bestest book ever written. It's called Hillary Rodham Clinton, Some Girls Are Born to Lead. After college, 
Hillary entered law school so that she could work for justice. Most future lawyers were men, and only boys could be lawyers, make illegal real estate deals, illegally cash in on insider information, lie under oath, and make mysteriously hundreds of thousands of dollars in a few days under suspicious circumstances. But that didn't scare her. She didn't care about what the boys said. She just went out and did it anyway. And Hillary loved Bill and politics and America and women so much that when many of those women complained that Bill's love for Hillary and politics in America became so great that he would grope them and have sex with them against their will. Hillary was the first in line to call them a bunch of filthy whores and destroy their lives because of her deep love of Bill and America and especially politics. <laughs> Bill reading a bedtime story. I walked in on him and he's reading out loud from this thing and I, he had me in stitches so I knew the video was going to be good. Uh, so this logic, this is the logic that's now being sold to Americans and has been being sold to Americans for 40 years. Of, you're an interest group. Only the government can save you. Come to the government trough and the government will give you stuff. Now, of course, it is being played out as farce at the Oscars. Okay, the big thing at the Oscars was for the second year in a row, there were no black actors nominated. Oh, my golly. Oh, my gosh. And then, of course, interest groups who have a whose whole purpose is to find bigotry and, you know, exclusion everywhere started doing studies. And these studies are being quoted as if they matter, you know, about how terrible things are in Hollywood. There are no blacks and no women and no gays and all this stuff. And the New York Times does this absurd article. You know, what's it like? to be and to work in Hollywood if you're not a straight white male. And like I said, I go to meetings every day in Hollywood to meet a straight white male. I'm the straight white male. I'm the only straight white male there. You know? I mean, it's like, it's like I'm lonely. I'm lonely in Hollywood, you know? So, I mean, I, you know, it's just, it's absurd. And it's, so the Oscars now turns into this self-flagellating relevant show. So it starts with Chris Rock, who comes out and does this routine, which, by the way, I didn't think was very good. You know, everybody was, all the left-wing media is like, oh, he was so brilliant, he was so brilliant. Let's, let's hear just a little bit of his, his routine here. Is Hollywood racist? You're damn right Hollywood's racist, but it ain't the racist you, that you've grown accustomed to. Hollywood is sorority racist. It's like, we like you, Rhonda, but you're not a kappa. how Hollywood yeah but things are changing things are changing yeah we got a black Rocky this year yeah some people call it Creed I call it black Rocky <laughs> and that's a big that's, a, that's an unbelievable statement I, I mean because Rocky takes place in a world where white athletes are as good as black athletes so Rocky's a science fiction movie <laughs> See, that the one big surprise of the night was that Sylvester Stallone, the sentimental favorite, didn't win. And Mark Rylance, who was a great, great actor, he won for playing the spy in Bridge of Spies. But, you know, they didn't want to give it to Sylvester Stallone because he's hiring black people. You know, he's putting black, he's making black people the star of his movie. Know why? He's a Republican. He's the only Republican in Hollywood, so he's putting black people in his movies. Everything else was just what I told you it would be. Brie Larson won and Leonardo DiCaprio. The only other difference was Spotlight because they give it to the director of Revenant, but they gave it to Spotlight because they hate Jesus more than they love good movies, I think, is what it comes down to. So every speech, every speech, the Caprio gets up and it's all about the environment and the guys who win for uh, um, the 
the Catholic movie uh, Showtime. What's it called? What's the uh, Catholic the movie that won? Spotlight. Spotlight. Sorry, I just said it. The ones who won for Spotlight, they get up and it's oh, you know, Pope Francis, you have to save the children. And then Joe Biden is there, and Joe Biden gets up and he's against sexual. You know, it's like what? So what you're watching, I believe, lowest ratings, lowest ratings in eight years or something like that. Just a total drop off. Like, you know, talk about Chris Rock. The ratings dropped like a rock. You are what you're watching is the end of the relevance of movies. Movies are simply, you know, for the, between 1930 and 1970, maybe the movies were a profoundly relevant art form. They were the way that America spoke to itself in the cultural sphere. That is completely not true anymore. I mean, when you went and saw that Star Wars reboot, the you know, The Force Awakens, you were seeing just a little wisp, a trace of what it meant when movies were the American art form. That's what it used to be like where everybody knew. Now nobody knows. Nobody knows what more. You know, some sometimes the kids go to see Iron Man and sometimes the older people go to see Spotlight, whatever, you know, but nobody's really sitting around talking about the movies way for the movies. The movies are no longer this discussion. So these guys are just getting up. They're just desperate to matter. They are desperate to matter. That's in their DNA. That's what actors and directors and artists are like. They're desperate to matter. And they're sitting there. They're making these speeches. And nobody's watching. Nobody's watching. I mean, because eventually, eventually, every speech is going to be a political speech, and the hall's just going to be empty. You know, nobody's going to watch, just going to be echoing. You know, like more black people should win Oscars, Oscars, Oscars. It's just going to be this echo. You know, because after all, you know, going back to the Peggy Noonan column talking about the protected and the unprotected, what you're watching is the protected. Leonardo DiCaprio. Listen, I'm not saying he shouldn't have his causes and do what he wants to do. He's an individual, but when he's up on that stage, he's working for us. When he's up on that stage, he's there to look pretty and be entertaining and wave. That's his job. And they're not doing their job because they, they're they desperate to have somebody look at them and desperate to, to matter, and they no longer matter the way they did. And that's why the Oscars has just become this kind of ridiculous show. Eventually, they're going to be saying, well, there's ten, we'll have to have 12 percent, you know, black Oscars. And then and the New York Times is still complaining that they didn't have black people design the gowns. You know, that's now that's what they're complaining about. So it's like if that's what you're complaining about, you haven't got any problems. You are not one of the unprotected if that's what you're complaining about. I would like to see Leonardo DiCaprio get up and talk about the people who've gone bankrupt, uh, the, the working men who are out of work because the, Obama has destroyed the coal industry. But he's not going to talk about that because coal is dark and dirty and, you know, he doesn't want to do that. Anyway, I want to end with stuff I like. I want to take a little extra time for stuff I like because talking about irrelevant art forms, I want to talk about poetry this week. And poetry is irrelevant because poetry sucks, okay? Modern poetry sucks. It is just bad. It became bad when the modernists took it over. But it used to be good, okay? And what happened, as a language ages, the poetry goes out of it. And there are many reasons for that, but I don't have time to talk about it because I got stuff to do, you know? I can't just sit here explaining these things. So, so but poetry, the, the thing I like about poetry is you can read it very quickly but you have to think about it to get the meaning out of it. And there is a poem, a very famous poem, I'm sure many of you have heard of it, by William Butler Yeats called The Second Coming, which speaks almost directly into the moment we're living in. He wrote it right after World War I, and he was kind of prophesying some kind of cataclysm, the end of something. And a lot of people say, well, it's ridiculous, that never happened, but in fact, World War II came and just wiped the continent off the face of the earth, wiped an entire culture away, so it was a prophetic poem. And what he sees is a second coming, he calls it the second coming, but it's not the second coming of Christ, it's the second coming of something else, something very terrible. I'm going to, it's a very short poem, and I'm going to read, I'm going to read it, but I just want to stop a, a couple of places and explain what he's talking about. It starts out, 
turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. So a gyre is a spiral, and he's picturing this falcon going up in the air. You know, you've seen this in the movies, the guy with the leather glove and the you know falcon goes up. And as a gyre in Yeats's theology was a cycle of history, and at the end of a cycle of history, things kind of fall apart. <clears throat> and so he's talking about this falcon who can no longer hear the falcon, the person who sent him up there. So he's like a person who can no longer hear his creator. He's gone so far into this into this spiral that he can no longer hear his God. Or, or picture it as a nation who can no longer hear the voices of their founders. They become the nation has become so big, so you know, uh, uh, rich, and so far away from where they come. They can no longer hear the voices of Jefferson and Washington and the people who gave them the ideals they're supposed to have. So that's why this falcon can't hear the falconer. He says, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. By mere, he means pure anarchy is loosed upon the world. And by the way, I always love it when young kids come and say, I'm an anarchist, you know, because they think that means they're free. What that really means is they get enslaved and their sister gets raped to death because nobody is protecting, you know, that's not the way the world works. So now mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is, lo is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. And this is one of my favorite lines in all of poetry, and if it doesn't describe where we are right now, I don't know what does. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And if you think about the best lack all conviction, think about the GOP who can't stand up to Obama. You know, think about all the people who sort of say, well, you know, we should be nice. We should, you know, we need to find places where we agree and all that. And then you want, think about the worst are full of passionate intensity. Think about the guys who went out and tried to riot because uh, Ben Shapiro went and talked at Cal State University. And they just, just riot, rioting to keep people from hearing him. Not to, not to, you know, not for anything, not because they were oppressed, just to keep people from hearing a different opinion. The worst are full of passionate intensity. That is the moment we're in. That is Trump supporters, the guys who are writing to me and calling me names. Uh, ben put up an excellent video you can also find on YouTube and on Facebook. Ben put up a video showing that Donald Trump is a liar. Go on, face, on YouTube and look at the comments. <laughs> I was going to call Shapiro up and say, gee, Ben, I didn't know you were Jewish. I mean, that's all they talk about. <laughs> it's like, yeah, dirty. So the, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And then Yates has this vision. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Spiritus Mundi means obviously the spirit of the world. And so he said, instead of seeing God made flesh, instead of seeing God becoming a human being, what he's seen is the spirit of man becoming a beast. The spirit of, of all humanity is rising up as a beast. A waste of desert sand. This is what he sees. A waste of desert sand, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs while all about it wind shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. His vision ends. The darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Sounds like an episode of the Ben Shapiro show, right? It's like... <laughs> it's like so he's, he's saying at the end of this spiral, when we've lost contact with our God, when we've lost contact with our principles, as things spiral out of control, some new 
vision is is arising and i think we may be meet, reaching that place it doesn't it's going to be painful it's going to be painful it doesn't have to be bad after the pain is over after the you know like i said donald trump is not donald trump is not the beginning of the future he's the end of the past and it's going to be up to us to replace things look like a system that can only throw up a desiccated corrupt old crone like hillary clinton and a proto-fascist blowhard like donald trump if that's the if those are the candidates we're forced to choose from that system doesn't work anymore that system doesn't work anymore. A system of the protected that leaves the unprotected in the lurch, that system doesn't work anymore. If it falls, if, if the, the principles fall, and there is some kind of real cataclysm that happens, it's going to be up to us. You know, it's going to be up to us to say what replaces it. You know, it's happened before. We had a civil war in this country. We had a depression in this country where they changed, essentially, FDR changed the government, changed the way the government was. We're, we're going to have to do it again. If, if this system has... Sta has become stagnant, if we're at a stalemate, if all we can get are Trumps and Hillarys, we're going to have to do it again. We're going to have to reinvent it. And that's, that's going to be our job. That's going to be us. So that's what we'll be doing here on The Andrew Clavin Show, because we'll be the last redoubt of the people who don't, don't think Trump is a viable candidate. We will be staying here, saying the least popular thing possible to our seven listeners as the country goes down the drain. And come back again. We'll do it again tomorrow. Tomorrow is Super Tuesday. We will be here. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening.